This podcast is brought to you by SMA, provider of the world's leading inverter technology and backed by the world's leading service team. With more than 850 service experts, 90 service hubs, 30-plus gigawatts installed globally, and thousands of commercial and utility-scale projects completed worldwide, SMA is the partner of choice for your PV projects. For more, visit www.sma-america.com. For the week of October 24th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. I am Stephen Lacey, your host and a senior editor at Green Tech Media. In this episode, my co-hosts and I will ask, can America be a solar manufacturing superpower? Heck, can it be just more than a marginal player? We've got someone with us who thinks it can. Later in the show, we'll discuss a few things we picked up at Solar Power International, and we'll finish up with a look at the abysmal political climate for renewables in Australia. Of course, at the end of the show, we will tell you something you do not know. Let's go to some people who you do know. You should know if you don't. Uh, They're my co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine is here with me as usual in D.C., although... I tend to talk to her more over Skype than I do in person. She's a partner with the clean energy public policy consulting firm 38 North Solutions. Hey, Catherine, how are you? I'm okay. My Mac got fried this week, so I've been Macless, and um, and it's really disturbing. You Makes can't you, believe how I'm rigged today. It, what, what do you have, like string and tin I cans? Do. and? I do. I have like this little processor that one of my partners set up for me, and they've got wires everywhere. Makes you realize what a computer addict we all are, huh? I know. And how we depend so much on those slacker guys in the Apple store. <laughs> I've never met a slacker guy in the Apple store. They've all been very helpful to me. You mean, you mean geniuses. That's right. Oh, Have that's some right. Respect. Sorry. <laughs> First you dissed Giants fans, and now you're dissing Apple store people, many of whom probably listen to this show. Uh, yeah, I'm actually, my, my uh, Mac is being held hostage right now, so I, I really depend on them to be nice to me. <laughs> All right, well, in San Francisco is our other host. It is Jigger Shaw. He is the founder of Sun Edison. He is a clean tech investor. Uh, Jigger, how was your week in Las Vegas uh, at Solar Power International? Fantastic. It's amazing. You know, I've only gone to Vegas for, uh, you know, gambling weekends or something like that last time, maybe like seven years ago. And going to the convention center, Vegas is really ugly when you're not on the strip. Vegas is ugly when you're on the strip. I don't, I mean, like I stayed at the Las Vegas Marriott and just walked across the street to the convention center. It was like nothing there. The sidewalks were black. It wasn't like a very pedestrian friendly city. Yeah, it's true. I went to, I walked by a strip mall and I saw... An advertisement for $10 tattoos, and then next door was a Wednesday night twerking contest. So only in Las Vegas do you get those two things together in the same strip mall. <laughs> All right, a couple quick notes before we start the show. Uh, firstly, we are recording this show on the 24th of October, but you might have noticed that it is the weekend. I had some busy travel at the end of the week, so I couldn't get it out immediately, so Many of you may be hearing this a day or two late, so apologies for that. Uh, Secondly, we are doing a live podcast at the ACEEE Intelligent Efficiency Conference on November 18th in San Francisco. We would love to see some of you there. I threw in a link in the show notes of the podcast so you can register if you're interested. And while you're doing that, you can also follow the link to our listener survey, which I know a lot of you have already filled out. We're just trying to gather some very basic data about why you listen to the show Hundreds of you have filled it out already. There are many more of you who should do so, and thanks so much for helping us out. On to the main event now, folks. Can America compete in solar manufacturing? Many are skeptical, but here with us to help answer that question is Brad Matson, the CEO of Siva Power, a high-efficiency SIGS thin film manufacturer based out of San Jose, California. Brad, welcome to the show. How are things in San Jose? We have wonderful weather out here. Loving it. Oh, yeah. And are you, I know you're at home today and not in the office. That's right. What's, what's got you at home? Just a, a nice relaxing Friday, although I'm suppo- I suppose there's no relaxing day for the CEO of a solar startup. 
There are no relaxing days, that's true. But we're, we're uh, planning to celebrate the Giants' victory today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. Well, Brad is the author of a new book called The Solar Phoenix, How America Can Rise from the Ashes of Solyndra to World Leadership in Solar 2.0. And the themes in that book are what we're going to discuss today. So Brad believes strongly that America can be a large player in solar manufacturing. Many others are skeptical. But recent activity, particularly SolarCity's new gigawatt-scale factory in uh, Buffalo and Tesla's gigawatt-scale battery factory in Nevada uh, and a few other pilot plants may hint otherwise here in the U.S. So, so Brad, um, firstly, I want to talk about Siva Power before we tackle this bigger manufacturing issue. In June 2011, a few months before the public collapse of Solyndra, you were tapped to take over this company, Selexin. It was a cadmium telluride than film startup. And at the time, you were at Vantage Point Partners. You were at the VC firm there. And things were not looking good in solar production. I mean, it was an awful time to be trying to scale a new product. So you came on board the company as CEO. You killed plans for a factory, completely changed the technology set, and instead started focusing on this co-evaporated high-efficiency SIGs thin film. And in 2013, the company reemerged as Siva Power. First of all, what the heck were you thinking becoming a CEO of a thin film company at that time? And secondly, how did Siva Power come into being under your watch? Yeah, I mean, those are really good questions. <laughs> In the first one, people would probably question my sanity. But if we go back to that time, it wasn't really that bad. Even, you know, weeks before uh, Cylindra went under, they were talking about the targets they were going to hit. They were trying to get their IPO out. So it was still, Solar was riding, you know, riding pretty high at that time. And uh, when the board asked me to come in, I kind of looked at it as, okay, you know, Solar's pretty hot. There's some uh, clouds on the horizon uh, but we could turn this thing around relatively uh, quickly. Uh, and boy, my, my timing, I, I accepted the gig, and, and two weeks later uh, began with Solyndra, the epic collapse of, of solar country companies around the world. So the timing, was, the timing was, was pretty bad. But, you know, basically I made a commitment to the board. Uh, they made an investment, and so I've stuck it through. Um, and uh, it, it's been really an interesting ride, as you can imagine. Um, and, and you have a background in semiconductors, so what was this switch in R&D that you made, and why go into SIGS thin film instead of cadmium telluride, um, and, and what was that process for determining what technology to, over, uh, to, to take on? I'll tell you, it was actually very interesting. Uh, we, we really decided we have to be data-driven, and uh, you know, I've heard notion, okay, there were a lot of unhappy investors and you know questions what's going wrong and everything else we really looked at it from a cost perspective so we actually took about a year to develop a very detailed cost model we we took a page out of the book of semiconductors as you know they they use a coo model uh, and they they really are building 4 billion dollar fabs now so we think solar is capital intensive it's nothing compared to semiconductors and they won't actually build those without vetting it through a very stringent cost model. I mean, they've learned over the years they have to. They don't really trust suppliers, what they say. They, they measure it, and they, they, if they don't measure up to the cost model, uh, you just don't pass through the, the vetting process. So we actually decided to bring some of that technique over. And I'll tell you, we started, uh, we tripled the R&D budget. We looked at all the materials. I mean, so we were CADTEL, but we looked at gallium arsenide. We looked at Indian phosphide. We had a contract and, and broke some records on CZTS. And, and finally, we looked at SIGs. But it wasn't just materials. Probably more importantly than the materials technology, we looked at manufacturing processes. So we looked at roll-to-roll -roll versus batch. We looked at singulated cells versus monolithic integration. We looked at various cell architectures, you know, metal wrap-through technologies, grid, gridless. Um, and I'll tell you, the most painful part of the process was when we looked at all these and we applied them to the cost model, I had a lot of really uh, difficult board meetings. I mean, the first thing I had to tell the board was, guess what? Nanoparticles were sexy. That's how you fund, what you funded the company on and all that. But from a cost point of view, they just don't cut it. And that was probably the first transition is away from nanoparticles. Uh, you know, we also transitioned from CADTEL to SIGS. The cost model showed that's the way you have to go. But probably the biggest transition actually was I was a big advocate of roll-to-roll -roll because there was a lot of roll-to-roll -roll hype going on back then. We had uh, nanosolar roll-to-roll, solar power roll-to-roll, MIA-SLA roll-to-roll. I mean, all the new stuff that was, you know, uh, invested at hundreds of millions of dollars. 
Uh, I had drunk the Rolls-Royce Kool-Aid also when I was at uh, Vantage Point. And, it should, you, you know, you pictured this printing press going by with a roll of material that could slice you in half. Um, and it just turns out that we, we found roll to roll was way too slow. So I think the, the migration of the company was over a two-year period uh, as we vetted all these technologies against the cost model, which is a very difficult thing. I mean, the numbers just are the numbers. Uh, we moved to what we feel now is clearly, I mean, data-driven is the lowest cost technology. But we started out nanoparticle, no. CAD tail, roll to roll on stainless steel. We ended up Covap SIGs on glass, rigid glass substrates. So quite a conversion. So, Brad, um, the twitch in my eyes started coming back when anybody mentions Solyndra. It was really hard to be in D.C. during that time. And a lot of VCs really have got burned by SIGs thin film. What makes you think that this time it's going to be different? Uh, you know, VCs and investors can be burned at, at any time. And I think we are still seeing uh, that happen. So I don't know if that part is going to be different. The, qu the question is, you know, uh, really uh, how you base your, inve your investment uh, thesis. And, and what I tried to bring to Vantage, Vantage Point while I was in venture capital is really this is a commodity industry. So you have to base it on cost analysis. And you'd be shocked in the investment community how little and how light the cost analysis was. So, uh, you know, basically what we're trying to do is teach that if you just look at these costs, it, it, you know, you don't have to trust the company because I think, you know, the trust, as you said, has been burned out. Uh, and so the venture capitalists don't trust. Uh, but what you do is just rely on data. So I think the difference is in kind of over the hype cycle, you know, there's always the hype cycle. And we went through a heck of a hype cycle. And then you have the real thing coming. I truly believe that, you know, what happened with China is they really did us a favor. I mean, basically, I, I believe China created the modern day solar market. So it's for real now. And so in the second cycle, as opposed to the hype cycle, we just look at the data and let it be data driven. And I'm hoping we have more rational decisions. Now, you know, you, you can't force people to invest, but I'm hoping uh, that the growth of the market shows how huge the opportunity is. And if we get past the hype and into more rational decision making, uh, money's going to go towards the lowest cost technologies. And, and data can tell you where that is. So, Brad, you know, I think Lyndon was on this podcast a few weeks ago and talked about how he thought the marketplace was actually going to be short capacity in the next few years. But I wanted to focus in on in June of 2014, you guys put out a press release saying you actually hired a, um, a president of uh, Siva Power China and you actually even brought in uh, the city of Wuxi, China as an investor. So the, how do you guys think about your relationship with China? There seems to be this you know, perceived adverse um, sort of feeling between China and U.S. manufacturers, but it sounds like you guys have bridged it. Well, I don't know if uh, is, is bridging it would be the strategy we're talking about. I would, I would talk more about um, uh, international engagement. I really believe this industry is not a national industry. It's an international business like any of the large sectors. You take transportation, you know, cars, you know, Volkswagen has a plant in Germany, of course, but they also have a plant in China and they have a plant in the United States. I believe any major solar company in the future is going to be manufacturing in all continents. So I kind of look at it as engagement. Um, uh, I think even though we want to manufacture in the United States, I think it, it wouldn't make sense even for a U.S.-based strong manufacturing company and have manufacturing here. You're going to need to manufacture in Asia and you're going to need to manufacture in uh, Europe. You're going to need to manufacture close to your customer. And it always works that way. I mean, I, I talked to the chairman of Trina about a month ago and I was, we were talking about plans. And, and their plan over the next five years is to get to about 20 gigawatts as fast as they can. They want to hit 20 gigawatts. You're not going to do all that in China. It, it wouldn't make sense. Uh, you've got to be closer to your customer. And, and I think when we went through this in the semiconductor industry, we had the same trade battles and same disputes. And the way it turned out is people end up manufacturing close to the customers for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's technology. Sometimes it's being close to understanding their needs. Sometimes in, in the case of solar, there's shipping costs. You're, you're shipping a heavy, it's glass you're shipping around the world. How does that make sense? So I think uh, there's a lot of reasons as well as the whole uh, uh, trade disputes that you get into on these very important strategic uh, technologies that you end up manufacturing on all the different sites. So for us, it's not a matter of, of, of where but when. You know, uh, we'd like to start manufacturing in the United States, but we're going to need to have a plant in, in Asia and in Europe as well. Let's talk about the book 
you think we're entering this era of solar 2.0. What does that mean to you in terms of manufacturing? You discussed that a little bit, but lay out your vision for American manufacturing. What makes you think that companies are going to want to locate here in a big way and actually compete with Asian markets? I think the, the basic premise of, of my uh, strategy or theory there is that we have just gone through the first part of the cycle. And I, I believe that really uh, what happened uh, was kind of almost, you can look at what happened in China as, as a one-time perturbation. It was very unique. And, you know, before they came in and spent about $50 billion, uh, if we go back and you guys could look at your projections, I think thin film have gone from like 5% market share to 25% market share. The world's leading company was a thin film company. The first one to get to a dollar watt was thin film. The first uh, one to uh, have a gigawatt capacity was thin film. The most profitable company was a thin film company. And, you know, four or five years ago, uh, the projection was thin film will go to 40, 50% market share. Um, I'd like to bring us all back to those days. And why was everyone saying that? We were all crazy? <laughs> I actually think we weren't crazy. There's a lot of reasons. And I put out a, a little paper, did a talk on that uh, at Intersolar this year, about eight reasons why thin film is a, really a superior technology. But the interesting thing is thin film wasn't available in China for scaling. At least the thin film technologies of Cadtel and SIGs weren't. You could buy amorphous silicon, and they did that in, in a lot. But the technology they could readily buy, and if you really just wanted to press the pedal to the metal and put in 30 gigawatts of capacity, there was only one choice. You, you know, they, there wasn't a lot of infrastructure in China, so you needed to be able to buy every tool. The processes needed to come with the tool. You needed to trust the suppliers. You wanted to have second, third generation tools so they could be brought up very quickly. You need to be able to buy all the materials. There was only one technology, and that was silicon technology that could do that. So basically, you know, they, they, in China, they took something like was a decade-old 25-megawatt production line that people understood very easy, and they just built a 1,000 of them. I mean, that was really the scaling strategy. Let's just build a 1,000 of those. And, you know, you compare that to other industries, that's not how they have scaled. So I really believe that was a, you know, I think it's great. It created the modern-day solar industry. But I think what we all thought five years ago was true, that thin film is inherently a lower-cost, more scalable production technology. So, Brad, are you, are you saying in the U.S. that you don't think crystalline solar can be manufactured in the U.S.? I would say that we cannot be competitive uh, competing with China on their own playing field, which is crystalline solar right, right now. Now, there is one caveat. If you believe that high-efficiency N-type silicon will basically dominate the market at some point in time, then I think you're, it's more of a technology play, and that's where innovation is important, and I think the United States is very strong in those areas of technology and innovation. Uh, I'm just not one of the believers that think N-type high-efficiency silicon is going to take over the market. I think that, still think the P-type uh, multicrystalline is the majority of the market. I think it will continue to be the majority of the market for the uh, short time frame, and, and I think there's more probability to challenge it through thin film than you would through the uh, high-efficiency N-type, more expensive technology. And what do you think the U.S. government's responsibility is in bringing about your vision? I think, you know, responsibility might be a big word. <laughs> but let's just say if the U.S. Is, wants to put kind of a muscle behind the words because they talk about advanced manufacturing, they talk about we can't just become a service economy, we need to have manufacturing, then they need to put some money behind that. And I think that would be, let's say, to meet their own agenda, that would be the appropriate thing uh, to do and what you have to do there, I think they're funding some of the things that are necessary. Of course, in terms of uh, technology development, and, and historically, the U.S. is great at that. We're, we, you got to love what we do there. We've invented so many things. The tricky part is we're not quite so good at translating that into high volume manufacturing, and we've seen industry after industry migrate to Asia. So I think we've lost a little bit of our mojo there. But I think the, clearly, what was the right thing to do is to help us in this funding gap, the commercialization, I call it in the book, the stage four commercialization funding gap, where you get these technologies, you, see, you vet them, you see which one really can scale, and then you need some assistance. And unfortunately, it's the loan guarantee program is the appropriate vehicle, but that got kind of politicized in, to a huge degree 
of course, with Solyndra. And, you know, uh, uh, Catherine can comment on this, but it was, it was horrible what, what happened to us in that. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that the loan guarantee program was a huge success overall. And I think uh, I'd like to get the word out on that. I think the success rate was like 90%. Compare yeah. that to venture capitalists or anything else. It's unbelievably successful. But we're yeah. cowering and saying, oh, my God. You know, no, I think we should be aggressive on that. That was a great program. It was successful, and we should uh, reapply it to solar. Yeah, I I, uh, I totally agree with you. There were two things. Uh, my two favorite parts of your bird, uh, book, Brad, were one was the dedication page to your wife, which was, <laughs> which was really awesome. I totally appreciated that. And the other one was you did a whole policy roadmap. And of course, I'm a wonk. So I loved it. I love the fact that you really dug deep into policy. But as you look at, um, you know, your four year plan to scale manufacturing and drive down costs, what happens when 2016 comes around in the U.S. and the tax credits looking at dropping from 30 percent to 10 percent. I mean, do you think that that is an issue, or or do you have just too many other things going on not to you know that 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 that's not going to make or break it? You know, I think we overfocus in the United States on the United States. You know, that's one problem we have, <laughs> and I, I like to focus on the United States too. But that's a policy that really impacts the U.S. market. And the U.S. market is growing as a part of the global market. But what is it this year, like 15% of the world market? So we can't get over-focused on that. And besides, there's, you know, what tends to happen on that, it kind of averages out. If, if we don't extend the ITC, then there's going to be a huge pull-in on 2016. So it'll be a banner year. It'll be an unbelievable great year. And 2017 will be terrible. But, you know, basically, if you smooth that out and if we didn't go crazy, uh, it would be a smooth transition. And I kind of believe already what we're doing on the cost reduction, we have the equivalent of a Moore's Law in solar. It's not quite as aggressive. You know, we get 20% reduction for every doubling of capacity, but it's still real and still happening. And I believe the continual cost reduction, part of what I'm trying to bring to bear, obviously, is the part of the continued cost reduction will make it so that these the credits aren't as, as important as they have been. Uh, and I think that it's a bump in the road, but we'll survive it. And if you look at the global picture, solar's taking off in so many different countries that I think I'm not worried about end, end user demand. I think the demand is going to absolutely be there. And I actually, truth uh, be told, I think it's not going to be a demand problem in the future. It is going to be a capacity problem in the future because, you know, the Chinese spent, let's say, $50 billion getting us the capacity we need. Because of that awesome investment, we're gone from, we're going to maybe do 45, 50 gigawatts this year. But I think everyone projects there's going to be another 50 gigawatts of demand coming and we'll get to 100 over five, six years, pick a number. But where is the $50 billion to put that capacity in place going to come from? No one's going to do a China again. And I think we're going to have a capacity problem based on the capital intensity of the industry and where's the investment going to come on the upstream side. We're so focused on downstream now. At some point, you can't have all these, you know, I love the channels. Vivint going out was awesome. Solar City, Sun Edison, everybody. Let's develop those channels. But at some point in time, you know, it's a food chain. <laughs> if there's a break in the link of the chain, if the supply, if there's no investment on the supply side, there's got to be a problem. So I think we're going to end up having a capacity problem. So... Your assumptions for competitiveness here are, for SIVA at least, based on this cost roadmap that you guys released in July. And you've got plans to build out a 300 megawatt plant eventually and um, potentially pump out SIGS thin film modules for around 28 cents per watt within four years of building that factory, starting at 40 cents per watt of initial production. So by comparison, I think uh, I think our GTM estimates are around 36 cents per watt. Um, in the coming years by 2017 for cost. Um, but your roadmap, why should we believe your cost roadmap? You know, you're still working on this pilot plant. If there's anything that I've learned from watching this space is that claims from manufacturing startups very often don't come true. So make me less skeptical here. <laughs> okay. And that's a tough, that's a tough challenge. You know, I'm doing it full time for my job right now is trying to make investors less skeptical. <laughs> it is a full time job. So I think, unfortunately, the claims of the past, and we've, you've all seen them, uh, have poisoned the well a little bit. Uh, I've taken a first stab at helping uh, change things by writing the book. I mean, why does a CEO of a solar company write a book? I'm trying to get information. Just You notice how many graphs. I mean, uh, it's uh, like 80 graphs in the book. Really just trying to fight it with, with data. And if I were to try to make you a believer, I'd say, hey, let's, we have to sit down and I could show you the numbers. I mean, it, it really has to do with that. Now, uh, giving kind of flying more a little bit higher than that, you know, 10, 30,000 feet, uh, really we're doing a simple, we're doing a simple thing. 
essentially, all these other industries that have scaled significantly, the semiconductor industry who's gone through the scaling process for 30 years, flat panel display industry for, for 20 years, everyone eventually ends up scaling the substrate and scaling the factories. Basically, they go to much higher output factories. And I think it's just solar's young and hasn't seen that yet. But I went through this in, in semiconductors for, for 30 years. Every time we would double the output of the factory, it only cost our customers 20%. So if you could double the output of factory, let's say it goes from 100 megawatt to a 200 megawatt factory, but it's only 20% more expensive, the economics are utterly compelling that you have to move to those higher throughput factories. And this has been proven in, you know, take flat panel displays, they had Gen 2 glass, 3, 4, they're up to Gen 10. Every time, any, if anyone wants to be a player, they have to follow the lead to the next generation because the economics are compelling, it's a commodity market. I think that's, a, that's all we're doing in solar is we're just taking a trick out of the bag that's been shown in these other industries for decades. And I, I think it just takes a little guts to say, hey, well, this is one, it's not a factory, by the way, that's one production line. One production line is 300 megawatt. And we say, okay, if we're going to do it, we won't just do a doubling. We're going to do a quadrupling or whatever. So we're really looking at taking a significant jump in scale. And the only thing that really limited it is, was the availability of tools. So, you know, you, you don't want to have to build an entire tool infrastructure. Uh, so our limit where we came to the 300 megawatt line was what was really commonly available out of the flat panel display industry. Because we're basically depositing on glass. We're a thin film company. You deposit on glass. That's what they do in flat panel display. And you can get 300 megawatt tools for some of the major processing steps already qualified. So I kind of would look, go through with you and I'd be telling you, hey, see this tool set? It does 300 megawatt. If we could do 300 megawatt, the economics are compelling. I can show you the math. No one else, everyone else has like 30 megawatt lines, 50 megawatt lines, we're 300. The math is compelling. The only question is, can we actually do it? Can you build the tools and will they perform? So I'd take you step by step and say, hey, these tools are already out there. There's only, there's, the risk factor comes down to really the SIGS deposition tool. That is not available. That's our IP. That's what we do that's unique. And we have to build a coal vaporization source that just doesn't exist in the industry. It has about 20 times the capacity of any other source that's been built. So that is the, so, the nut. So, Brad, make a prediction for me. It, you know, let's assume that we're doing 20,000 megawatts a year of solar deployment in the United States in 2020. How much of that's going to be manufactured in the U.S.? Good question. Good question. I would say uh, in 2020, I'd say about half. Wow. And that's a big increase. And, and you well, think you know, I'm not, I'm not just counting on U.S. manufacturers. I truly believe what's going to happen, and, and again, I've seen this in automobile industry, steel industry, semiconductor industry, flat panel display industry. I think you're going to see the leaders, you're being leads in Trina, they're going to build a factory in the United States. And then you're going to see an opportunity for thin film. I believe there'll be a thin film resurgence, and that could be led in the United States. So it's going to be a combination of U.S.-based. You have your first solar here. Uh, hopefully, we want to be doing it here. We want to have by 2020. We want to have about four gigawatts of capacity in the United States. Uh, if we, you know, so we'd have to be. We could do it all if we were very successful. We could carry that ourselves. But I think there'll also be an international companies coming into the United States to manufacture here. And I'll wrap up by asking, why should we care? Right? I mean, manufacturing has become much more automated and doesn't support as many jobs as, say, solar installation. And if we look at consumer electronics manufacturing. The only thing consumers really care about is cheaper products. And so we can develop the intellectual capital here and then manufacture overseas. Few people are up in arms about the lack of iPhone production here in the U.S. What to you is so different about solar? Why should people out there care that we currently don't really have much of a manufacturing presence and in your world, we should? I think there's a, there's a couple things there. And uh, I'm not an expert on this, but people that are have said, looked at this, and you look at us in the manufacturing sector versus the service sector, and a manufacturing job has a multiplicative effect on the economy. I don't know if the number is three, four, five times, but it has much more impact on the economy than a service job. So I think that it's widely understood that manufacturing jobs pull their weight, they punch way above their weight. And so there's a lot of value to having manufacturing. And there's also this big question of, can the United States really be a world power is if it's a 100% service economy, you know, so there's that whole question. But I have a bigger issue, actually, and it has to do with energy security. You know, right now we look at, we've been dependent on foreign sources for energy for years. People would argue it's gotten us into wars. People would argue it's cost us trillions of dollars. So if you look at basically this, we have a dependence, let's say, on Middle East oil, but they only supply, what, 30% of our oil or something like that? 
Why would we trade dependence on Middle East oil for dependence on Chinese solar panels when they have like 90% of the market? I mean, we talk about, we're worried about a 30% concentration in another power outside the United States. What about a 90% concentration? And the only other country I know of that's really putting up huge numbers of dollars over the next, let's say, 10, 20 years to do something would be Saudi Arabia, which dedicated $100 billion to solar. So when we look at that, does, you know, what are we doing in terms of really having energy independence? And so I'd argue for energy security's sake, we ought to have manufacturing in the United States. Brad Matson is the CEO of Siva Power and author of the book, The Solar Phoenix. Really enjoyed the book. Uh, finally got to read it on the airplane and a uh, fantastic book for both people in the business and uh, a general audience who might not have the technical knowledge of you know, all the thin film technologies or crystalline silicon technologies. So k- kudos on that. And thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's been uh, great, Stephen. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Brad. All right, it's time now to talk about our show sponsor, SMA. A properly maintained solar plant can increase yield up to 30%. And of course, you want to maximize your production and accelerate your investment payback. And you can do that with SMA's operations and maintenance service, which includes 24-7 remote monitoring for commercial and utility-scale PV plants. O&M offerings from SMA are scalable to fit your business model, and they're backed by the industry's number one service team. Uncover the full potential of your PV system with SMA Service. You can find out more at sma-america.com. This week in Las Vegas, the solar industry gathered at the Solar Power International Conference, the massive national solar brouhaha held in October. Everyone's there in the solar industry, almost everyone's there, and it is the perfect place to gather intel on what people and companies are up to. So we're going to talk a little bit about that have a short segment recapping the week. Jigger and I, um, we're going to reflect briefly on what we took from the show. And Jigger, I'll just go first to you. If you had to pick anything that stood out for you in terms of activity or conversations, do you have anything that comes to top of mind? Yeah, a lot of the utility scale guys told me that First Solar was really uh, cutting their price to for 2016 to gain market share. So um, it makes me bullish that they're unaffected by the, uh, by the Chinese tariff. And then there were a lot of conversations around solar frickin' robots, uh, robots to do cleaning, robots to, to build systems. Kind of interesting. For me, it was mood-related at first. I think that's the first thing I'd come up with. It was like I haven't been to the conference in a couple years, actually. And the last time I was there was in 2011, and the mood was uh, pretty soured there. Speaking of manufacturing, it was right after Solyndra went bankrupt and manufacturers were fighting for their lives. And... The show is a little bit smaller now, most because there are a few manufacturers exhibiting. But people kind of feel like we've hit this inflection point, you know, reaching the point of no return, potentially. And it certainly didn't feel that way a few years ago. Um, But that's not to say everything's going perfectly, of course. A lot of the inverter companies are definitely struggling in the same way the module producers did back uh, as prices continued to fall. So definitely hearing a lot about um, issues with inverter companies. And I also talked to a number of people who listened to the podcast with SolarCity's Linden Rive, and certainly from a lot of people hearing more skepticism about whether SolarCity's model can actually be sustainable long-term when you look at the company's overhead costs, say, to compared to like a local installer. And of course, that financial tool it uses retained value. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, listen to our podcast from a couple weeks ago, and that will fill you in on everything related to SolarCity's business model. And Lyndon addressed some of that, but certainly hearing a lot of skepticism around that. And I feel like more than I have in at recent conferences and uh, from folks I talked to. It sounded like from the stories that came out, because I was not there, um, was that there's a lot of consolidation being talked about. And um, I mean, David Crane talking about being needing to be vertically integrated and seeing that a lot of companies are kind of starting to come together into conglomerates. I mean, did you all get that sense? Yeah, I feel like a lot of people are chasing Solar City right now as it vertically integrates. So Sunrun acquired REC. Um, you have NRG acquiring roof diagnostics. Um, people want this national contractor model and they want to control it from the top down. And again, as I mentioned, like I think there's skepticism around whether that model can work long term, but the mergers and acquisitions are coming fast and furious. And uh, certainly I think through the end of the year and into 2015, there are going to be plenty more in the downstream solar market. That is what uh, everyone I talk to thinks. 
The other good thing was that um, the Solar Power International show this year for the first time did a separate solar hot water and heating and cooling conference on Monday and Tuesday, which I thought was really good. It was, you know, it was a small conference, but I think it was um, well received. And I think it shows the maturity of the solar PV industry, recognizing that solar hot water is different. Some other themes from the show for me just quickly were storage and software. The microinverter company Enphase uh, released a new product for distributed storage, and I had off-the-record conversations with a couple other inverter companies that will be releasing storage products coming up in the next couple of quarters as well. So definitely keep your eyes out for more power electronics news and integration news in, in distributed storage. And, uh, I mean, the market is still pretty limited in the U.S. today. Everyone's eyeing Germany. They're going to roll out European products first if they not if they aren't already and then roll out into the U.S. as the market evolves, particularly commercial. And uh, another big grid integration company I talked to, again, they didn't want this on the record. They said uh, they're going to have three or four big microgrid projects coming out soon. And they've, uh, they're all overseas, but they're really working to get better rules here in the U.S., as we have discussed numerous times. And then on the software side, like five or six years ago, there were all these new manufacturers popping up everywhere. And now it's software companies. Jigger mentioned robots. For me, it was software. They're, um, you know, that's like the company is trying to be the next sales force of the industry, creating tools for customer outreach and project management. And there is a big boom going on there. Actually, I'd call it a mini boom just because the revenues are so much lower and the products are less capital intensive, of course. But uh, certainly a reflection of how well the downstream market is doing. Yeah. The other thing I found was I talked to a lot of people from Texas that were there. So there did seem to be a lot of folks thinking and talking a lot about Texas and how we might get a whole bunch of megawatts into Texas before the end of 2016. Um, and amazingly, I mean, Roan um, clearly talked a lot about the ITC and how we needed to give more money to political action committees, et cetera, which I thought was you know, good because I do think that the solar industry does a horrible job of giving enough money uh, to PACs. I mean, given Catherine's uh, comments a long time ago about how she was sort of browbeaten at the utility to get money to the PACs. Um, but um, so I think there's a recognition that we need to be a little more politically generous. Yeah, one of my cl- one of my clients sent me a picture of Harry Reid and said she was uh, that he was calling on everybody to be more politically involved. Yep, and so and Lyndon Rive also made a more diplomatic statement, similar to the one he made on the podcast, where he called out <laughs> Vivint Solar. Rather than calling out Vivint, he just talked about the industry as a whole needing to invest more in the political world. So uh, I think you know Solar City now has 18 people on its policy team, and they're working on both the national and state level, so they're making a huge investment there. All right, let's go from Nevada over to Australia for our last topic. Once considered a leader in climate and renewables policy, the country has completely reversed course under Prime Minister Tony Abbott. Abbott, who once called climate science absolute crap, refused to show up at last month's UN Climate Summit, where world leaders were gathered. The government has scrapped its carbon tax and is now working on a plan to scale back its 20% renewable energy target. And the man responsible for putting that together, that plan together, is Dick Warburton, who is also a climate skeptic. So the politics are pretty abysmal in Australia for anyone who's concerned about climate change. And uh, we're going to talk about the latest developments in the negotiations between Abbott's Liberal Party, the Labor Party, the clean energy industry on reducing the renewables target, which uh, currently stands at 20% by 2020. And Abbott wants to cut that target by about half due to declining electricity demand in order to make it a so-called real 20% 20% target, and renewable energy companies are pushing back hard, saying it would kill large portfolios of projects that are currently underway. Catherine, uh, the politics are messy here. I know you're not a political expert on Australia, so I won't expect you to go through all the details of the politics, but may- maybe you could frame this up for us. What's your takeaway from all this? Yeah, so as you said, Tony Abbott paid this guy Dick Warburton Burton uh, half a million dollars to come up with a report that said we need to get rid of renewables. And as you say, you know, there's this sort of disingenuous approach, which is because our energy consumption dropped, uh, really the forty-one thousand gigawatt hours is twenty-seven percent goal, and we can't possibly make that. So now it's going to be a twenty-six thousand gigawatt our goal, which is, which what it does is, and which also makes it a moving target constantly, because as you then drop more energy consumption, that will have to still become smaller and smaller if you use that rationale. But what it really does is cut 
it really by about 70% um, because they're already 40% of the way toward the goal. They've already carved out the small scale uh, because, of course, they don't matter to the big fossil guys. So it's really just the large projects. And what's going to happen is that the investors are going to be totally scared off. Um, the coal industry gets an $8 billion windfall out of this, and gas industry gets $2 billion windfall. And um, you know what it really shows is that policy makes a difference. This is a huge deal. This is um, going dr- to lower, drastically lower investment in renewables. It's going to raise the price for consumers. Their, their prices are going to go up because this was really working and shows that it's their version of a renewable portfolio standard, this renewable energy target. It really shows that something like that from a national scale can drive an industry. And uh, I just saw another report um, yesterday that a wind turbine manufacturer Actually, just laid off another hundred workers, so it's it's not good. Yeah, and General Electric's Jeff Immelt just weighed in the other day. He was lambasting the Australian government and uh, said that that his company's investments in the country would start to seize up without some kind of deal and some clarity. Um, Jigger, as an investor, would you consider opportunities in Australia given what's happening there? Well, I mean, let me take this from a different perspective. You know, I've met Christine, um, you know, Milne from uh, the Green Party there. And, you know, what's fascinating to me is that she is literally treating you know, Abbott like, you know, the Republicans treat Obama here. She has 10 seats in the Senate and she's shutting down everything. Nothing gets through the Senate because they need her votes to get anything through the Abbott, you know, agenda. And she's shutting down everything. And I think it's awesome to see how, you know, the Greens are actually standing up, showing a little bit of a back um, and not just being the party of compromise all the time. Um, so I think it's pretty cool. I also think that when you think about the scale back of the renewable energy goals in Australia, they're really pushing for even the even the Abbott government is pushing for, I think, 20 percent of real power, um, you know, kilowatt hours to come from renewable energy, which is a lot, actually, given where Germany and other other places are. So it's not it's not horrible. And then the last piece I would say is that, you know, he's basically betting the farm on coal. And I think with all of the policy changes in China and all the policy changes that Modi has put in place in India, it's very likely that coal prices collapse in Australia, which basically makes Abbott a sucker. Well, the country is about three quarters coal, I think 15 percent natural gas and the rest renewables, only five percent non-hydro renewables. So they are very, very dependent on coal. And, you know, I, I have to say. Jigger, I kind of disagree with you on the 20% target being uh, still okay, even if they scale it down. Because I think we have to take this in the bigger context, right? If you look at the entire picture, the, the, the Abbott government is also looking at reviewing appliance standards as well, which administrators of that program say will save $57 billion in energy costs over the next 15 years. Um, you know, they scaled back the carbon pricing scheme uh, to completely killed it all together. It's not like there's like a small difference in opinion on these issues. It seems to be an ideological belief that non-fossil energy should play nothing more than a marginal role. And I think what's ironic here is that the Australians are paying 60% more for electricity in recent years because of this $40 billion build-out of fossil fuel infrastructure and transmission and distribution infrastructure that wasn't needed. And the states allowed the utilities to develop projects that weren't needed, even when demand was starting to go down. And we talked about this on the show before. Um, And so that has made up the vast majority of these costs. And the government is blaming renewable energy and blaming the carbon tax, when in fact, the Treasury says that the carbon tax only made up about 9% of a consumer's bill, renewable energy made up only 5%. So I just think that there's this ideological component to this top-down ideological component that is affecting all of these programs, and that's a big deal. No, no, I agree with you. I I apologize if I said otherwise. Look, I think my point is that if the Abbott government's pushing 20% absolute kilowatt hours, like, you know, there are very few places in the United States that are at 20% absolute kilowatt hours, right? And so my point is that we're making progress, and I think what Christine is doing by holding hostage the entire Senate of Australia on our issues is working in the same way the Republicans have gotten a lot of what they wanted out of the Obama administration. I think it's interesting to see how much political power we really have and that when these dirty, crazy people like Abbott actually try to go after us, 
that he literally is digging his own grave and you can see it happening in front of you. Because the thing about 75% coal energy in Australia is that's not where the profits come from. The profits in Australia come from exporting that coal to China and India, which they actually don't want to buy anymore. And so as China and India are weaning themselves off of Australian coal, Abbott's entire economic model will collapse and he's going to be left with renewable energy as his only growth strategy. I don't know that that will happen within his tenure, though. Well, yeah, and if you scared away all the investors for some of these big wind projects and big solar projects, it's going to be tough to bring people back in. The last thing I want to talk about is the negotiations. It's very early stage, but and um, you know I haven't really seen any good ideas that could replace the mandate. So, like, I'm not ideologically wedded to a mandate, a target. You know, you could have some sort of competitive bidding process or. Um, there are other ideas, you know, changing tax policy that might replace a mandate. Um, but after reading this review, uh, as far as I can tell, there are only two alternative proposals. Uh, allow the target to continue, but close it to new entrants that haven't signed contracts. Or the targets could be adapted to reflect yearly electricity demand, as Catherine talked about. And I haven't seen anything more visionary here. Um, you know, just creating targets isn't the only answer. And I'm wondering if, if more will come out as these negotiations continue. And of course, to anyone out there who is from Australia with a knowledge of this issue, if you know of any good ideas that have been proposed besides these two, I would love to hear them. Um, Jigger, any thoughts on that? Have you, have you heard about anything beyond a target or know the market there enough to know if you know, some sort of broader competitive bidding process would work rather than you know, the set target? Well, I don't think it's about the structure right now. I think right now it's basically an ideological battle that has no basis in fact. And that's why I think that – I really do think that Tony Abbott's making his last stand. And I think within the next six to eight months, he will actually lose so much credibility. And I think Christine is doing exactly what she's supposed to be doing, which is saying no to everything and just letting this thing fester and fester and fester until the Australian people just kick him out of office. Wow. Bold words from Jigger Shaw, folks. <laughs> Would love to know if folks from Australia agree with that. Comment in the comment section. Um, all right. This is the end of the show, and we are going to tell you something you do not know, and I'm going to give Catherine the first whack at this one. Thanks. So while you guys were packing your bags and collecting your quarters for Las Vegas, I was up in Boston last week at the Harvard Business School um, Energy Symposium. I was on a panel about women in energy, which... Um, Ironically, if you except for our panel, 90% of the speakers at that conference were men. Um, and most of the conference that I heard was about unconventional oil and gas development, which was a bit of a bummer for me. But talking uh, to this group about women in energy was really interesting. Most of the people in the audience were women, but there were a few men. And I would just say um, a couple of the men were from India, and they were trying to figure out how to get women more involved from their country. One guy was like, I need to get my sister over here to school. All my brothers have been sent here, but my sister has the other gentleman said, I, I run a, a group of um, companies and I want to get more demand on the demand side, more women engaged. So it was really interesting. And it made me think that for whatever, whatever I've gone through over my 30 years in the industry and whatever any guys of dudes have said that I worked for, I'll tell you what, I feel pretty lucky having worked here. I love it. And I will say to, as a follow up to that, at the Solar Power International show, there are so many women in at the show i just feel like to, compared to the other conferences i go to there are far more women than any other industry and a lot of bright young women who want to get in the energy industry through solar which is uh very unique i think that's wonderful jigger how about you tell us something we don't know well so i was talking to tor valenza and a few other folks uh vote solar and there's this been there's been this big trend which I just sort of missed um, around how large companies are actually offering their employees uh, cheap solar systems like Cisco Systems, 3M, Kimberly Clark, and you know the funny thing is I didn't know about this but I. I went to listen to Ernie Moniz talk yesterday in San Francisco, and he mentioned the program, which I thought was interesting. So there's now companies representing over 100,000 employees that are offering you know, to finance uh, and, and help uh, their, their, their employees get cheap solar. A sign of the times. I'll just have one more SPI follow-up. 
I got to take a break from the SPI show in Vegas to talk very briefly with Secretary of Energy on the roof of the Mandalay Bay Convention Center, where um, NRG just commissioned this 6.4 megawatt rooftop system, and it's the second largest in the U.S., I think they said. It was absolutely enormous. I mean, a 6.4 megawatt rooftop system is a sea of solar panels on a building. I didn't get anything earth-shattering from the Secretary. Uh, I've had a number of press availabilities with him, and he sticks, sticks to his points, um, but I did talk with the MGM Grand's head of sustainability who talked about the decision to host the solar system. And he gave me kind of that traditional corporate sustainability speak about how MGM wants to be a leader, kind of the same thing every company says. But he did give a very candid answer about buying on-site solar power that was pretty notable. And he said, like, like from day one, the company was saving money through the PPA. He said it was super easy to pass through MGM for that reason. The company had been trying to develop a solar project there for many years, and today, finally, the technology is cheap enough that it made sense, and they signed a PPA and were saving money from day one. And it's got three or four other big properties in Las Vegas that it's immediately putting solar on. So it's like this perfect example of the shift that's underway. Big companies aren't just buying the wrecks. They're not planting trees to show how green they are. They're buying power from the largest systems in the world because it's cheaper for them. So it's, that's another example of solar 2.0, to use Brad Matson's term. Cool. The show's over, but you can listen to so much more at greentechmedia.com slash podcasts and access all our back episodes. And I know some of you listen to each show more than once. Our survey, survey shows it. You can also get background stories on the topics we discuss through the show notes on the website. And for those who still aren't subscribed to the podcast, you can get hooked into us by clicking that little subscribe button on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher Radio. We will be there waiting on your computer or mobile device every time we post a new show. You can always connect with us on Twitter as well, or send me an email, Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. And of course, thanks to SMA for sponsoring this show. Thanks to you for listening and making the whole thing possible. And thanks to my co-hosts. Talk to you next week, Catherine. Yep, have a great week. You too. And Jigger, you're going to be gone next week, right? Yep, I think we're going to get our friend Andrew Winston to uh, fill in for me. That's right. Well, we'll miss you a lot. Where are you going to be? And You're going to be in Africa, right? I'm going to be in Nairobi, yeah. My wife is out there, so I'm going to go out and visit her. Enjoy your trip. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I am Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.